Hi everybody, it's Steve Weir, Grace Point's Pastor of Arts and Communication, and I'm here to say welcome, or welcome back, to the Grace Point Podcast. At the end of this episode, please take a moment to subscribe to our podcast via iTunes or on our YouTube channel. Feel free to check out our website for all the latest information about everything going on here at Grace Point. But most importantly, I hope the following presentation inspires you to take your next step toward becoming a fully committed follower of Jesus Christ. Enjoy. Um, You know, it is possible to be very terrified of a threat that is really no threat at all. So I had this experience a number of years ago. We had some friends who very graciously allowed our family to, to use their home in Maine for a summer family vacation. And so we had never been to Maine before. We drove up there. And it was an older home and had been updated and everything, but we got there and we kind of walked through the house, got the lay of the land, and then we unpacked all of our stuff. And it was getting, getting close to bedtime because we had driven all day. And so we, uh, we went to bed. And so this is our first night in the house. And I woke up in the middle of the night, as I often do, and I, I heard something. And you know, when you're in your house and you hear something, you know if it's like a normal sound or not. And we're in this house, and I have no idea, you know, what this could be. So I thought, okay, I'll just, I'll go downstairs, and I'll kind of walk through, double check, make sure the doors are all locked, because I I had locked all the doors when we went to bed. So I go down, I'm checking the doors, and I got to the main door that we had come in. It was ajar. And so I was like, okay, I know I did not leave this door that way. And so I went ahead and locked it up. I kind of looked around in the house, there's, there was a basement. I didn't go down in the basement at that, that point. Um, so I went back upstairs, and I tried to go back to sleep. And I'm like, just, you know, okay, think of verses. God is my protector, all this stuff. But I tell you, I, I was laying there. I've never been, like, so terrified. And so I finally went downstairs, and I sat for a while, and I prayed for a while. And then I, find, I was like, okay, I, I give up. And so I went up, woke up Sherry, told her what was going on. And I said, we, we need to just wake the kids up, and we need to, to go out of the house because I'm not sure what's going on here, why that door would have been open. And so we, we're waking the kids up. It's dead of night. And they're like, wow, what's going on? And we're like, we'll tell you later. Just, just we're going out of the house. So we went out, got in the van, and we drove across the street where we had a visual of the house, but we were, we were safe, right? And so we just felt like, okay, well. So we called the police because we thought maybe there's an intruder in there, whatever. We don't know how to handle this. And so, so as we're waiting for the policemen to come, we're sitting there talking about this, and we discovered the answer to the mystery. Um, Before we had gone to bed, all of us had gone outside to to look at the stars and because we're out in the country and, you know, we don't have the light pollution and all that stuff. So we all went out, oh, wow, isn't this awesome, God's creation and everything. So then we come in. I I did lock everything up. One of the kids went back out and was looking at the stars again and came back in, did not lock the door. (laughs) Shall go unnamed. So... um, so we, we all were, so the policeman arrived, we explained all of that. He said, you know, I'm here, I'll go ahead, walk in, walk through the house and just make sure. And so he walked through and he went down the basement to, I, I was not going down in the basement because I'm like, keep in mind, we're in Maine. I mean, this is Stephen King land, you know, I'm like, we're going to be the plot of the next novel, you know, and like, that's where they keep the bodies. I'm not going down in the basement. And so anyway, so. When all was said and done, we, we got back in the house, we went back to sleep. The, the, the reality was, 
there was no threat at all. But you could not have convinced me of that in those moments. I mean, I, I was never so terrified in my life because I thought, there, you know, the explanation is somebody's in here. It, it reminds me of Saul, as we have been studying Saul and David. It reminds me of Saul because Saul is convinced that David is conspiring against him to steal his throne. And so he is so convinced that David is a threat that he is mobilizing, he is spending all of his energy trying to get rid of, of David. So contrast that then with David. David is like the inverse of that. For David, there is a real threat. There is a real danger. I mean, Saul is really after him, trying to take his life. But David is moving forward most of the time. David is moving forward, pressing forward with life. And, and just he's operating with a level of trust and confidence. And so what, you know, what makes the difference? I mean, we're going we're gonna to talk about that this morning. But I, I wonder if some of you are facing a threat right now, maybe imagined, maybe real, Maybe it's a person that you work with that is threatening to you. Maybe they're intimidating to you. Maybe it's somebody at work, and they, they're, they, they make it so that you just don't even enjoy going to work because you, you know that you're going to catch something from them. Or maybe it's a financial threat that may not be real yet, but it's possible with the financial, the kind of the turbulence that's going on in our economy right now, and you're just kind of wondering how things are gonna play out in the future. Maybe you're waiting for results from a medical test, and that's kind of looming out there. Is, is there a threat that you're facing right now? If so, we are going to talk about this morning, how do you press into that threat with a peace from the Lord, even in the face of danger? We're going to see how to do that in 1 Samuel chapter 23. If you would turn there with me, if you don't have a Bible with you, there's one close on the seats there to you, and it's on page 273. We're continuing our study on David, and I I shared a few weeks ago one of the factors for choosing this study this summer was the fact that Sight and Sound is doing a show about David. And so we have uh, a group of us that are going over there to see that this Saturday. We have one ticket left. So first come, first serve, grab Steve or, or email the office and whoever steps up for it first. We're going to see the show and then we're going to get a shady maple after. So I'm not going to eat like all week. I can't wait for that. So anyway, it's going to be a fun, fun day. Um, as we continue studying Saul and David, there is this, this increasing contrast between the two of them. Saul is becoming more and more ruthless. Last week, we saw him order the execution of 85 priests. And, the, and, and Doeg, the Edomite, who killed them, ended up killing the entire town where they lived, all of their families, their animals even. The darker Saul's life becomes, the brighter David's life contrasts against it. 
And we saw at the very end of the chapter last week, David talking to this one priest who had escaped the massacre. David said to him, stay with me. Do not be afraid, for he who seeks my life seeks your life. With me, you shall be in safekeeping. David is so convinced of God's protection that he says, just stick close to me and and you'll be Okay, let's read on in chapter 23. Now they told David, behold, the Philistines are fighting against Keilah and are robbing the threshing floors. Therefore David inquired of the Lord, shall I go and attack these Philistines? And the Lord said to David, go and attack the Philistines and save Keilah. But David's men said to him, Behold, we are afraid here in Judah. How much more then if we go to Keilah against the armies of the Philistines? Then David inquired of the Lord again, and the Lord answered him, Arise, go down to Keilah, for I will give the Philistines into your hand. Let's unpack this just for a moment. We'll put a map up here on the screen so you can see where Keilah is. It's near the border of of Judah. It's about 12 miles from Gath. Actually, that's probably not to scale. It's probably much closer to the the, uh, border there. And Gath is in Philistine territory. You may remember Gath was the hometown of what famous giant? Goliath, right? Goliath was from Gath. And so they are very close to the edge of Philistine territory. What the Philistines are doing is they're coming in and they're stealing their food. It's harvest time, it's threshing time, they're stealing their food. This is going to be a crisis because, keep in mind, I mean, these people are totally dependent on their agrarian culture. They're raising food, they're going to store some of it for the winter, and if this doesn't stop, they're going to have a huge crisis on their hands. So David hears about it, and he asks the Lord, should I go and attack these Philistines? This is really noteworthy in and of itself. Because we could expect, as we're looking at David's life, that David at this point might be totally focused on protecting himself. I mean, he's on the run for his life from Saul. And so it would be understandable if David just said, hey, I'm, I got to protect myself. But he's thinking of others. He's thinking of this, this town that's under, under attack. And so he's stepping up to help them. Meanwhile, it would be reasonable to expect that King Saul would go to protect this this town. But instead of Saul protecting his people, he's spending all of his energy trying to take out David. So what makes the difference between Saul and David? Well, it's where their eyes are focused. I mean, Saul's eyes are focused squarely on himself. And, and, and so he's, he's all about trying to preserve his power, trying to preserve his kingdom. And so he, his world is just shrinking as he focuses on himself. David, meanwhile, David's eyes are focused on the Lord. He's, he's trusting him. Again, most of the time. David is human. We saw a couple of weeks ago that he kind of fell apart emotionally. But most of the time, his eyes are focused on the Lord. And so that opens him up, empowers him to be able to help others. So David, even David's focusing on others, even in the midst of this 
unrelenting oppression that he's experiencing. He is facing real danger. His men are facing real danger. They are near this enemy territory. They're also facing Saul. And so it's no wonder that his soldiers balk. They say in verse 3, Behold, we're afraid here in Judah. How much more if we go to Keilah against the armies of the Philistines? So David asked the Lord again, are you sure about this? I mean, he wants to, he needs some reassurance for his men. And God says, yes, I want you to go. They respect David enough to follow him and they, they win. In verse five, David and his men went to Keilah and fought with the Philistines and brought away their livestock and struck them with a great blow so David saved the inhabitants of Keilah. I'm just going to pause there before I read on. Can, can we bring the lights up? Is anybody back there? Yeah, okay, Taniqua. I was, I was like, do I have my sunglasses on? Because I, like, I can hardly see you guys. And if you're trying to read your Bible. All right, yeah, however, however much you can bring those up. That's awesome. All right, so, oh, there we go. All right, let there be light. All right, um, let's read on. So David saved the inhabitants of Keilah. Verse 6, when Abiathar, the son of Ahimelech, he is, he is the one priest last week that we saw who escaped. When he had fled to David from Keilah, he had come down with an ephod in his hand. Now it was told Saul that David had come to Keilah. And Saul said, God has given him into my hand, for he has shut himself in by entering a town that has gates and bars. And Saul summoned all the people to war to go down to Keilah to besiege David and his men. David knew that Saul was plotting harm against him, and he said to Abiathar the priest, bring the ephod here. Then David said, O Lord, the God of Israel, your servant has surely heard that Saul seeks to come to Keilah to destroy the city on my account. Will the men of Keilah surrender me into his hand? Will Saul come down as your servant has heard? O Lord, the God of Israel, please tell your servant. And the Lord said, he will come down. Apparently, this, this ephod was a provision that the Lord gave to the priests to be able to communicate directly, to ask these particular questions this way. So the Lord was specific, said he will come down. Verse 12, David said, will the men of Keilah surrender me and my men into the hand of Saul? And the Lord said, they will surrender you. So David and his men, who were about 600 by now, we saw 400 earlier, it's increased to 600, arose and departed from Keilah, and they went wherever they could go. They just, they ran, made a run for it. When Saul was told that David had escaped from Keilah, he gave up the expedition. So this, when we think about this town, Keilah, this sounds kind of ungrateful, doesn't it? I mean, David rescued them. I mean, he risked himself and his safety to rescue them. But before we're too hard on them, we have to remember they, they know what Saul is capable of. I mean, no doubt they have heard of Saul's massacre at the town of, of Nob and all of these priests. And so they don't want to be the next one on the list. And so we we, we have to go a little bit easy on them because of that. David, of course, heard of the massacre too, and he doesn't want another one on his, his hands. And so he, he asked the Lord again, what, what should we do? What's going to happen here? And so David escapes. He, he makes a run for it. Again to the wilderness, verse 14. 
David remained in the strongholds, in the wilderness, in the hill country of the wilderness of Ziph. And Saul sought him every day, but God did not give him into his hand. That's an interesting statement from the narrator because he's saying God did not give David into his hand. Do you remember what Saul just said back in verse 7? He said, God has given him into my hand. So Saul is misjudging the situation and the circumstances, which is what happens typically when we have our eyes on ourselves and we don't have our eyes on the Lord and we're not seeking the Lord's will. He's totally misjudging what's going on here. David has escaped to the wilderness. We have some some pictures here of the wilderness of Ziph, and it is a really rough, rugged place. Warren Wearsby says, when visitors to the Holy Land see this wilderness area, they often express amazement that David could even survive living there. It's It's a rough, rough area. And so I have to just pause and ask the question at this point. How could God treat his beloved this way? I mean, we've we've said that the name David means beloved. How could God treat his beloved this way? David is under constant threat. He is is running for for his life. And I, I step back and I look at David's life as a panorama and I conclude this. God does not spare us from attack, but he does deliver us from defeat. God does not spare us from all the attacks of life. He does ultimately deliver us from defeat. We wish that he would deliver us from all of it. We wish that he would deliver us from the attacks. We wish that there wasn't any hardship in life, but God doesn't, he doesn't operate that way. See, that's how we define safety. We define safety as nothing bad ever happens, especially kind of in our Western mindset. But God doesn't operate that, that way. He, he allows attacks for at least two reasons. One, to demonstrate that he can bring us through it by his strength and not our own. And then secondly, to, to train us, to train us to be able to, to fight and to endure through the difficulties of life. You know, as we, as, as we are seeing happen in our culture, we can expect that more and more and more as time goes by, our, our position of following Christ, our lives of following Christ, is going to be more and more out of step with our culture. And so we can expect that when we go into our workplaces or when we go into our classrooms, or when we go just into our our neighborhoods, that when people find out we're a follower of Christ, we we may experience some some persecution, some oppression. Some of that may be misguided, because sometimes people will hear that we're a Christ follower, and they will associate us with some other Christ follower that wasn't very Christ-like in their following. So sometimes they'll be mistaken in that, but other times they're going to look at us and they're going to say, wow, you really believe what's in this book? And you believe all of those directions that are telling you to live your life in a completely different way than our culture is going? And when we say, yes, I mean, I'm, I'm bound to obey my king. Jesus is ultimately my king. Then that's going to cause us to be out of favor and we may get some flack for that. 
And God doesn't want us to remove ourselves from that and to, to say, okay, we'll create then a community of all people that we think alike. He wants us to learn how to endure and press into that and learn how to love those people in spite of all, all of those, uh, that persecution or that oppression. This, this also reminds me of the conversation that we had as a church several years ago that the leadership of our church was really praying through what would be our next global focus. And when Lebanon came onto the table and we started to, to pray about that and consider it, we had the conversation like, should, should we be doing this? Should we be going to Lebanon? Like, is anybody gonna want to go to, to Lebanon? Because, I mean, it's, it's in a, an area of the world that's very volatile. It, the, the country itself has been volatile at times. And so is this a good idea? Are people gonna feel safe enough to go? And I'll, I'll never forget Ellen Livingood, who was, was part of our team praying through this. She's very tied into missions around the world. She, she kind of injected a, a thought into the conversation of just saying, you know, oftentimes we in the West, we, we define safety as that, that God is going to protect us from any bad thing ever happening. We're not going to get sick. We're not going to, you know, really come under any kind of danger. And she said... That, that's really not what we see. That's not what we see in Scripture. That's not how we see God handling his heroes in, in Scripture. Um, that's, that's not certainly what we see when we look at missionaries around the world. If every missionary removed themselves from a dangerous situation, there would be a lot of areas of the world that are not being evangelized. And so I was really excited as we prayed together to say, uh, that, that team of people that were selecting and, and then making that recommendation to the elders and then subsequently the elders praying through that, that we said, you know what, we, we don't want to take the easy path. We, we want to do something that's going to challenge us out of our comfort zone. And I'm really excited that uh, this fall we already have, many of you have stepped up saying you want to go. You're ready to go. So we have a full team ready to go in, uh, in November. We're working out the details for that. And then we have more people who are wanting to go after the first of, of the year. So excited about that. God allows attacks at times. And, and we can be expecting that even, even the, the trip that we had in March, there were all kinds of things falling apart the week, the week before. We can expect that there will be attacks anytime we're doing uh, God's, God's work. But thankfully, in the midst of all of the attacks, God provides encouragement along the way, as we read on verse 15. David saw that Saul had come out to seek his life David was in the wilderness of Ziph as Horish, at Horish, and Jonathan, Saul's son, rose and went to David at Horish and strengthened his hand in God. Don't you love that Jonathan was able to find David, whereas Saul was not? That's kind of interesting. Verse 17, Jonathan said to David, do not fear, for the hand of Saul, my father, shall not find you. You shall be king over Israel, and I shall be next to you. Saul, my father, also knows this. And the two of them made a covenant before the Lord. David remained at Horish, and Jonathan went home. This had to be a huge encouragement after, after David's betrayed by this town that he went, risked himself to, to save. And now he has a loyal friend coming to him who's reaffirming his loyalty to David. Jonathan's been nothing but loyal to David. And this meeting between Jonathan and David, this is the last recorded meeting. 
that we have between the two of them. So David gets a much needed shot of encouragement, which he's going to need because he's about to be betrayed again. Verse 19. Then the Ziphites went up to Saul at Gibeah, saying, Is not David hiding among us in the strongholds at Horish on the hill of Hakalah, which is south of Jeshimon? Now come down, O king, according to all your heart's desire to come down, and our part shall be to surrender David into the king's hand. All right, this, again, had to be another blow to, to David's confidence because Ziph was in Judah. It's, it's the land, the tribe that David is from. If anybody should be loyal to David, it should be these people, but instead it seems like they're trying to curry favor with Saul. So verse 21, Saul said, May you be blessed by the Lord, for you have had compassion on me. Go, make yet more sure. Know and see the place where his foot is and who has seen him there, for it has told me that he is very cunning. See, therefore, and take note of all the lurking places where he hides and come back to me with sure information. Then I will go with you, and if he's in the land, I will search him out among all the thousands of Judah. And they arose and went to Ziph ahead of Saul. Saul is a good enough soldier to know that he shouldn't go into this desolate area without as much intel as he can get. So he's like, go search him out, see what you can find, and then I'll, I'll come in uh, for, for the kill, literally. Reading on in verse 24, now David and his men were in the wilderness of Maon in the Arabah to the south of Jeshimon, and Saul and his men went to seek him. And David was told, so he went down to the rock and lived in the wilderness of Maon. And when Saul heard that, he pursued after David in the wilderness of Maon. I mean, Saul is hot on his tail. Saul went on one side of the mountain, and David and his men on the other side of the mountain, and David was hurrying to get away from Saul. As Saul and his men were closing in on David and his men to capture them on the edge of our seat, a messenger came to Saul saying, hurry and come for the Philistines have made a raid against the land. So Saul returned from pursuing after David, went, after, went against the Philistines. Finally, he's doing something on behalf of his country. Therefore, that place was called the Rock of Escape. This was a close call. I mean, this is like the moment in the movie when the hero, like you're just watching, there's like, there's no way out of this. And then something, somebody unexpected shows up. And then suddenly they save the day. God shows up here with this message. Maybe he instigated the Philistines to, to do this raid or whatever. But God intervenes and delivers David again. And finally, David and his men get some much needed relief from this chase. In verse 29, David went up from there and lived in the strongholds of En Gedi. En Gedi is an oasis in the middle of this desert. Uh, this picture really shows how there's desert, 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 and it's rock and just miserable. And then right in the middle of that, there's this little green patch. And when we zoom in on that, you see that there's, it's just beautiful. It's a beautiful spot. And you can imagine David and his 600 men just being like, wow, what a moment to be refreshed, to take a break, to take a swim. Just how nice is it to just get some relief from all this oppression? 
So that's pretty sweet, but I can't help asking the question, wouldn't it have just been easier if God had spared David from the chase altogether? I mean, God anointed David to be king, and wouldn't it have just been much neater and easier if God had then removed Saul from being king? I mean, why not, dare I say, like strike Saul with a heart attack or just incapacitate him some way if that's, if that's like too, too much? But God, God doesn't operate that way. He, he, doesn't, he doesn't spare us from the attacks, but he does deliver us from defeat. See, here's, here's the deal. God has anointed David to be king. He has chosen a man with a heart after his. But now he has David in advanced king training, and he is training his hands and his head. He's training David's hands. We, we can see in David's own words from Psalm 144, He said, blessed be the Lord, my rock, who trains my hands for war. God is training my hands for war and my fingers for for battle. Instead of sparing David from attacks, he's using the attacks to train David. If you're going to lead in any area of life, you're going to have to know how to fight. You're going to have to know how to fight for what's right. If you're going to lead in any area of life, if you're going to lead a company, if you're going to lead a cause, if, if you're going to lead a classroom, if you're going to lead a family. I mean, there is always opposition coming against what's right. So you will have to be able to stand up and fight or you won't be able to lead very well. So God is training David's hands to fight. Now, it's important as I say that, we, we have to remember who we're fighting, who our fight is really against. Our fight is not, remember Ephesians 6, not against flesh and blood, but against the spiritual forces of evil that are instigating evil in the world. That's who we're fighting against, and we must learn how to fight them. God is also training David's head how to think, how should he be thinking about life. From a human perspective, David is in constant danger. He's under constant threat. From heaven's perspective, David is perfectly safe and protected because he's under God's hand. Stonewall Jackson knew this. I love this quote from him. Uh, If you know anything about Stonewall Jackson, he was very, uh, he had a strong faith. And he said, my religious belief teaches me to feel as safe on the battlefield as I am in my bed. God has fixed the time for my death. I do not concern myself about that, but to be always ready, no matter when it may overtake me. So I don't care which side you support in the Civil War. I mean, that's a good quote right right there. To have such a peace that God is in control. I I suspect that at times David wished for relief from, from the attacks. But the hardships trained him and actually turned out to be a blessing for us today because we have half of the book of Psalms, 75 of those at least, were written by David, many of them during these times of oppression, these times of hardship. And so when you and I experience threats and hardship and oppression, we can relate to him because of what he went through and recorded for us. If you would turn with me 
to Psalm 54. And we'll, we'll end with that this morning. That's on page 526. If you're using one of those Bibles at your seat. Um, the Psalms give us, we, we get the narrative, we get the story from 1 Samuel, but we get inside of David's head, inside of his psyche, inside of his connection with God as we read the, the Psalms. And so Psalm 54, the byline tells us, uh, it's to the choir master with stringed instruments, a mascal of David, when the Ziphites went and told Saul, is not David hiding among us? So now we get to see what was going through his mind when that betrayal was happening. Verse 1, O God, save me by your name and vindicate me by your might. O God, hear my prayer. Give ear to the words of my mouth. For strangers have risen against me. Ruthless men seek my life. They do not set God before themselves. So he, he honestly, in raw language, just being real, he just brings the situation to God. And then he affirms, he reaffirms who God is to him, how he sees him. Verse 4, behold, God is my helper. The Lord is the upholder of my life. He will return the evil to my enemies in your faithfulness put an end to them. With a freewill offering, I will sacrifice to you. I will give thanks to your name, O Lord, for it is good. For he has delivered me from every trouble and my eye has looked in triumph on my enemies. David is affirming what God has done in the past. He has delivered me from every trouble and my eye has looked in triumph. That's what God has done for me up to this point. That's why I'm here at this point. So I'm confident because he's done it in the past. He's going to do it again today and in the future. And I love in verse six that he offers a free will offering to the Lord, just out of gratitude. He's so confident of God's protection of him. He's moved to say, I've got to do something. You realize there are two kinds of ways that we give back to God. One is out of obedience. God calls us to give the first and the best of what he blesses us with. So that's out of obedience. But this is a free will offering where we're saying, God, I'm just so grateful for you. And this is David still in the midst of danger. He hasn't been delivered from everybody yet, but he's celebrating God's deliverance. He's so moved. He says, I have to do something. I'm going to offer a free will offering to you. So we, you and I really know that we're grateful and we're, we're confident that it's God who's delivering us when we're so moved from gratitude that we're willing to, to give. We're saying, God, I got to do something. Who can I bless in your name? because of your blessing to me. Some of you are being attacked right now, and you wish God would spare you from that. You wish that God would just remove all of that from you, but God doesn't operate that way. Um, he didn't with Jesus. We see this in Isaiah 53. Yet it was the will of the Lord to crush him. He has put him to grief. When his soul makes an offering for guilt, he shall see his offspring. He shall prolong his days. So notice how the suffering comes first and then the deliverance. He will see his offspring. He will prolong his days. The will of the Lord shall prosper in his hand. Out of the anguish of his soul, he shall see and be satisfied. So there's attack and then there's deliverance and satisfaction. 
By his knowledge shall the righteous one, my servant, make many to be accounted righteous, and he shall bear their iniquities. Therefore, I will divide him a portion with the many, and he shall divide the spoil with the strong, because he poured out his soul to death and was numbered with the transgressors. See, the crown comes after the cross. The deliverance comes after the attack. And you and I can be eternally grateful that Jesus was willing to endure attack to the point of death and then was delivered from that death so that you and I can share with him in his death and in his resurrection. We're going to celebrate that in a few moments in communion. So what do we do with, with this? Well, I would suggest that we, we adopt a new perspective on the hardships and the attacks of our life. And that is this. God doesn't spare us from attack, but he does deliver us from defeat in the end. And so God is involved in a training program with you and me. He's training our hearts. He's training our hands. He's training our, our heads. And he wants us, like David, to get free from self so that we can think about how we can serve others around us. As I've been reflecting on this in the last week, I I wrote this. What if what appears to be a threat is really just a test of trust? And when we rest in God's ability to deliver us, we rest easy, knowing we are safe, And everything is going to turn out okay in the end. We can look around the world and we can see people under persecution and we can know that people at times even give their life for their faith. Has God delivered them from defeat? You bet. He he didn't spare them from that attack, but he delivered them from a defeat because for us, death is a promotion, Let's let's ask God for for the courage to press into his training program. Father, thank you for your good purposes in our lives, even in the bad things that happen to us. And we see in David's life just attack after attack, oppression after oppression. And Lord, I confess at times, I I look at his life, I look at my life, and I think, wow, I wish we could just skip all of that and get to paradise. And yet you don't operate that way. So Lord, I, I just want to be submissive and I want to pray for, the, for another person here this morning, for those who are uh, undergoing oppression, who may feel a threat that is paralyzing them. Lord, may they recognize in that that you are seeking to train them, to train them how to, to fight against that fear, how to rest, how to, how to change the way they think and, and their head to, to, to realize that being under your hand is, is the safest place to be by your definition of safety. And thank you, Lord, that we can look forward to when we get out of this broken life and this broken world, being in your presence of, of true relief from the sin and the evil of this world forever. You will deliver us ultimately from, from defeat. We thank you, Jesus, that you went ahead of us undergoing attack 
but being delivered from defeat. We celebrate you this morning, and, and we thank you for what you've done for us. It's in your name we pray. Amen.